Welcome to Soundboard, your source for news, culture, and community issues in Central Virginia. My name is Louis Reining. Soundboard airs every Saturday at 6 a.m. on WTJU 91.1 FM and also podcasting as part of the Teej FM network. That's T-E-E-J dot F-M. Tune in, subscribe, and find out what's happening in your community and around the state. Later in the show, we'll talk to Richmond-based journalist Peter Galaska about Virginia politics, plus a look at Charlottesville's refugee community. But right now, we're joined here in the studio by Giles Morris, Executive Director at Charlottesville Tomorrow, as well as Emily Hayes, News Reporter, and Billy Jean-Louis, Education Reporter at Charlottesville Tomorrow, to talk about a big first at Albemarle High School and how the Rio 29 plan is shaking out. So Billy, if we can start off with you, there's recently been a pretty big first for the Albemarle High School Student Council. Can you tell us a little bit about what's happened? Of course. So Yatsil Romero Rodriguez is the first English as a second language uh, student elected to the Student Council uh, at Albemarle High School. Uh, she'll also be one of two uh, Latino on the uh, 20-member Student Council. I'll tell you this, she has a very uh, interesting story. Uh, six years ago, she migrated from uh, Veracruz, uh, Mexico, and didn't speak English. So she said she struggled to fit in because of the language barrier. But uh, she has found her way around. She, spe- uh, she keeps a very busy schedule. She's in the school's Latinx uh, advanced via individual determination and key club. Uh, she also told me that uh, she wants her story to inspire other students because it was difficult to adapt to her new life in the U.S. Now, she said she ran for student council because she wanted to make a difference. Uh, she's fluent in Spanish uh, and English and thinks that other Latino students uh, can relate to her. Now, she didn't know about the elections. Faculty sponsor of the school's Latinx club, Russell Kolok, uh told her about it. And that's because he knew that Romero Rodriguez, uh, what she could do as a student, um, he said she's, she's mature for a 15-year-old uh, student, just being able to take on leadership roles and things like this. I think you touched on this a little bit, but just to sort of follow up, uh, did Yatsa herself or did others sort of talk about or what it does mean to have an, uh, an English as a second language student uh, a part of this conversation now at, at leadership? You know, I, I just want to I, I just want to flip this around on Billy because he he moved to the U.S. in high school as an English uh, language learner and had to navigate a high school system that way. So I'm just curious, you know, given the interview and also your own experience, kind of how you would answer that question. Um. You know, it's it's very difficult at first. Uh, I was um, lucky because when I was uh, in Haiti, I went to a private school. I started learning English when I was 14, although it was hard to communicate, but I kind of like had a good foundation. But one of the things that she told me is um, she didn't feel welcome because it was hard to make friends. And I've had the same experience where uh, you are in ESOL and then you pushed out with all the other students who are in ESOL. You never have that full uh, experience to be with everybody else. So, um, like she said, her goal is to actually have those students' voices uh, heard. And so 
if anyone from that community feels that they're not welcome or anything like that and they can't communicate with students on this uh, on the student council in English they can take their suggestions to uh, Ramiro Rodriguez and then she could be the voice of the voiceless and somewhat uh, translate for them I think that Russ Carlock's piece in this is also really interesting. I mean, he's been an incredible leader developing that community and that club and repping the students and pushing for representation for them. Um, and, you know, I think, you know, he's been recognized for that, but I think it's hard to um, underestimate what it takes to have faculty be as committed as he has been to that group in the student body, organizing the club, lots of nights, lots of weekends, and um, just committing, you know, fully to, to that community. And uh, to me, that representation, I mean, I, I think probably people don't understand, like, even the internal Latinx issues at a high school where you have kids from Guatemala and Honduras and Mexico and Salvador, and they click up, but they have to rep to the whole student body what it means to be Spanish speaker and you know, it's, 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 it's just a complicated, complicated thing to be going through as a young person. And then speaking of new approaches, Albemarle County has recently uh, passed the Route 29 plan, and Emily, now we're trying to, or we're starting to see what that means for development around here. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so this really ambitious Route 29 plan, it wants to turn this sort of shopping mall, car-centered intersection at um, where US 29 and Rye Road connect um, into this walkable destination with you know some green coming through it. Um, but they don't own that land. So to get landowners to participate, they have sort of three things they've done. They've involved landowners in the process, asked them you know what their vision is. Um, landowners, if they want to get special use permits or rezonings, um, they'll have to sort of fit with the vision. And then the other thing is that they get sort of a prioritized review the second it comes on top of the pile of applications that gets looked at first. So the first project to get that prioritized review went to the Planning Commission on Tuesday for a work session. It originally started out as this just a self-storage building, um, which was the county staff sort of t told them, like, you know, that doesn't really work with our vision that we've just passed. and. So then the developers uh, thought about it, and they were like, yeah, actually, we're excited about this um, you know, multi-use uh, future. So they added an apartment building that will be on the edge of Rio Road, and the self-storage building is behind it. And then they also have a path. And I thought it was interesting, looking on their website, they have this advertised on their website. It's like, this is a new, exciting thing. You know, We're sort of part of this pioneering um, you know, this is our first development where there's a path involved or something like that. Um, the developers are Greenscape Development Partners. Um, and then there, there are some holdups that they work through in the work session. Um, you know, the county wants the developers to commit to building the apartment building, you know, sort of shortly within the time that they build the self-storage building. Otherwise, you know, what if it never happens? Then it's still this development that doesn't fit with the county's vision. Um, and then they also wanted an affordability sort of quota within it where 15% are um, set aside as affordable. Um, so both of those were, were a little, you know, it requires a commitment of money on the developer's side, you know, $10 million or $15 million to build that apartment building. Um, so they were hesitant, but 
it looks like maybe there's a compromise and you know rather than a two-year time commitment when the you know he, the developer was worried that that would put him directly in the middle of the next recession they talked a lot about that at the meeting like I think it's going to come in two years so if we start this now we won't get any financing Giles Morris is the executive director, Emily Hayes, the news reporter, and Billy Jean-Louis, education reporter at Charlottesville Tomorrow. Find out more and read the latest at charlottesvilletomorrow.org. You're listening to Soundboard here on WTJU 91.1 FM and the Tej FM Network, T-E-E-J dot F-M. WTJU and Tej FM are both a service of the University of Virginia. Opinions expressed on this show are, of course, just that. Opinions, not the positions of the University of Virginia. Well, we turn now to state news, and as we do, we check in with our Richmond-based correspondent, Peter Galaska. Peter, good morning. Good morning. So I want to start things off today talking about Ralph Northam's yearbook photos. So this is a big scandal that rocked Virginia earlier this year. Um, there's now been a big report looking at uh, the, the medical school yearbook photos to see if that was actually Ralph uh, and what's up. So take me through the story. Well, it turned out to be a big nothing burger <laughs> in the sense that um, Virginia, Eastern Virginia Medical School um, hired a big Richmond law, law firm, McGuire Woods, which is very politically powerful to do an investigation, I think it's going to cost like $300,000, to look into whatever happened to this 1984 yearbook where Ralph uh, Northam, our governor, and then a student at uh, uh, the medical school, appears um, either as a Klanner or in blackface in a, you know, kind of a goofy photo. And so they came out with a report this week, and so it was nothing. I mean, they can't decide whether or not it was Northam. And this just just adds to the confusion of you know because Northam originally, if you recall, when it was revealed that um, you know he was in the photo, that he first said he was and he said he wasn't, but then he said later that he was when he was in the army as a doctor, he was in a show, um, the dance show, and he showed up in blackface as Michael Jackson. Anyway, but there are some takeaways from from I think the report that aren't so good for anybody. And what are those? Well, first place of the the report. Uh, some 50 pages long. I haven't read all of it, but I looked through it. Um, apparently, Northam's gubernatorial staff really did not know what to do, and neither did Northam, when news of this um, blackface photo first came out. And rather than come out with a decisive statement, they got any statement and raced out with it. And uh, that may explain, although not completely, why you know they came out saying, yeah, I'm in it. Then they say, oh, no, I'm not in it. That's one thing. It also makes Eastern Virginia Medical School look awful because the medical school knew about this. They knew about the photo since at least 1980, uh, uh, no, excuse me, 2013. And apparently, how did Northam, who is a, I believe he was lieutenant governor then, how could he not know? Did they not tell him? And the school never mentioned it. And by one account, they even went out so far as when they were showing a bunch of their yearbooks, they, they removed the 1984 version from the, you know, from the coffee table. You know, you, you touched on this a little bit, but part of the issue is not even just, you know, did Ralph Northam dress up in blackface or not? Is that him or not? The, the issue, as much as anything, has been how he reacted and responded to it and the kind of ham-fisted, not really understanding the real point uh, concerns that people brought to it. Take me through, so what's that all about? Well, I think, I think what really made that point, because remember, just go back to, I guess it was February, late January. Anyway, um, Northam had a notorious interview, on, I think it was WTOP radio in Washington, 
where he was talking about late-term abortions. And even though he was trying hard to make a point that was technically correct, he kind of blew that. And that was immediately jumped upon by uh, anti-abortion people throughout the country as, uh, you know, murder. I mean, like the idea is whether you kill a baby just as soon as it's born or not, which isn't really what he said, but that's how it was interpreted. Then, within a matter of days, you have this, this blackface thing, which had been you know circulating for at least a few years, and all of a sudden it's popped out by a right-wing website. So I don't know. It's kind of weird. The whole thing's strange. It is. Well, speaking of uh, Virginia politicos who've moved on to other things, I suppose, uh, the Trump regime has now tapped uh, uh, former Attorney General Ken Cuccinelli to play a lead role in shaping immigration policy uh, at the federal level, at the Department of Homeland Security. Um, that's uh, some news right there, uh, that the idea that, that Cuccinelli would be helping shape immigration policy. Take me through what's going on. Um, well, I think the point is, is that he is supposed to go with Homeland Security as a quote-unquote I hate to use the term, but that's what they say, immigration czar, the czar of immigration, someone who's going to coordinate what obviously will be a harder-line policy within the Trump administration. You remember Ms. Nielsen, who was the previous um, Homeland Security person, was 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 criticized for, some, some people might say, refusing to break the law for Trump. I'm not saying Cuccinelli necessarily would, but when he was uh, attorney general back in the day, I mean, I covered him, you know, very thoroughly, and he he had some really pretty radical views on immigration, and one of them was that he wanted to get rid of the idea that um, if your your parents are are foreign or illegal, that if you're born here, you're an American citizen, and a whole bunch of other things that he really wanted to reverse the clock on or change, and we'll see what happens, but. You know, um, I don't know. Should he be immigration czar? No, it shows where Trump's going. Well, uh, as we close today, I want to talk about uh, addiction treatment here in Virginia. There was an article in Virginia Mercury that at least posed a good question. Uh, What would happen if Medicaid paid for um, uh, mental health treatment, Um, just as they do for addiction treatment nowadays? Uh, There's a uh, Take me through that piece, but also just, you know, what's going on in Virginia when it comes to funding mental health treatment? Right. Um, Basically, what the idea is, is that, first off, Medicaid does fund some, some mental health, but you have to qualify for it. You have to, you know, get certified that that's right. There's been a lot of criticism in Virginia that uh, at the advanced levels of mental health care, like Central State Hospital, for example, um, has been, you know, that it's been cited as a sample of neglect in terms of facilities, in terms of, you know, leaky roofs and overcrowding and things like that. At the same, and the idea is, like, should you back down that level of care uh, the state already has something like 39 uh, community service boards. There's one in Charlottesville, for example, where people who are having a mental health crisis can go and get 24-hour treatment. And if needed, they then can be transferred to a uh, psychiatric ward at a hospital, in this case at the UVA. Um, but the problem with that is that the quality of the CSBs really does vary. It depends on where you are. And also the location, that was a factor when Creed Deed's son um, attacked the senator and then killed himself a few years ago in Bath County because the CSB or whatever did not have enough beds and then they had to travel too far. The idea is to, is to sort of redirect the funding to make it even more community-based and to start treating um, mental illnesses like schizophrenia or bipolar disorder earlier in the game. And how would that impact Virginia? What's the, what, what are the next steps on this? 
Well, I think the next step would be to somehow adjust the laws. I mean, as you know, just getting expanded Medicaid funding was a, a major battle, but it's been won. And it's already more, more you know, Medicaid money is going down to help people uh, who meet certain income requirements uh, to help addiction, which is a huge problem, as you know. Um, and now to expand that to, um, to, to certain mental health cases that, that can be very dangerous to, for the person, the victim, or the, the patient, and to help them at a much earlier stage, it could be a really good thing. All right, Peter. Well, thanks so much. Uh, have a good week. Yeah, you too. Peter Galaska is a journalist based in Richmond. You're listening to Soundboard here on WTJU 91.1 FM and the Teej FM Network. T-E-E-J dot F-M. WTJU is supported by the Southern Environmental Law Center, celebrating 30 years of protecting the South's environment and the people who depend on it for health and well-being. Power of the Law, Southern Environmental Law Center. UVA students with Professor Stephanie Sarasso produced a three-part audio documentary series on the refugee community in Charlottesville. Today, we'll hear part three, A Better Future. I'm Brad Joseph. And I'm Amanda Patton. And this is episode three of Refugee Realities, a podcast series where we interview local refugees to explore their individual journeys and the obstacles they've had to overcome. For our third and final episode, we wanted to discuss some of the resources that are available for refugees in Charlottesville. We spoke to the executive director of the Charlottesville International Rescue Committee to learn more about their services. But before we get into that part of the episode, we want to start somewhere totally different, approximately 7,000 miles away. We're going to start on the southeast border of the Democratic Republic of the Congo, where one refugee named Bushiri spent years of his life seeking asylum. My first name is Bushiri, and my last name is Salum. When Bushiri was seven years old, the Second Congo War began, which has since been classified as one of the deadliest global conflicts since World War II. And although the war officially ended in 2003, the North Kivu region of the Congo, where Bushiri is from, has had continuous armed conflicts. Rebel soldiers regularly raided Bushiri's town of Katwa. And when Bushiri was 17 years old, he suffered the loss of his parents and six of his eight siblings to what he describes as a bombing attack. It was a bomb. My parents had two houses. One, it was the big houses where my parents and my six siblings slept there. Then me and my two siblings slept in the small house. Bushiri and his two younger siblings survived the attack because they were staying in a separate house at the time of the bombing but they were unable to stay in their village due to the danger present, so they were forced to leave. After that, so some people who knew my parents helped us, and then we ran away. So we walked for a month, like 11 months so from our town until when we get to the refugee camp. Bushiri explains that him and his two siblings were with a group of other refugees, all headed south from North Kivu to the Zambia border. They would walk for three weeks and then rest, and then walk for a month and then rest. For almost an entire year, they walked from village to village with nothing but the clothes on their back. And at the end of 11 long months, Bushiri said they finally made it to the border and were transported to a refugee camp. When we get to the refugee camp, it was big camp. About uh, 22 to 24,000 people. You know, life in a refugee camp was, it was kind of hard. Sometimes we don't have food. We live in the tent. 
So sometimes it's 120, 150 degrees, so living in a tent, no air condition. Although Bushiri and his siblings were safe, life in the refugee camps was extremely difficult. Bushiri spent four and a half years in two different refugee camps, hoping for an organization to pick up his case. After a long period of waiting, the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees selected Bushiri's family for interviews. From there, the United States accepted his case and conducted health checkups and interviews with Bushiri for 10 months until he was finally given a visa. In total, Bushiri spent over five years in refugee camps. I want you to think about who you were five years ago. Where were you in life? How much has changed since then? Five years is a long, long time. And at the end of those five years, Bushiri said he was glad to finally move to America. I was very happy when they took us from the refugee camp to capital city of Zambia. We came from Zambia to Dubai, Dubai to New York. So the next step, because the big office for IRC International Rescue Community is located in New York City. So they have some paper to fill then the office. After that, the same day, send us here. They sent you to Charlottesville? Yes. Five years and 7,000 miles later, Bushiri and his siblings finally landed in Charlottesville. We learned in our first episode that refugees are placed in Charlottesville because of the city's public transportation system, low unemployment rate, and the UVA Medical Hospital. Now that we know what brings refugees here, we want to discuss some of the resources that are available for refugees in Charlottesville for our third and final episode. We spoke to Harriet Coor, who is the Executive Director of the International Rescue Committee branch located here in Charlottesville. We interviewed Harriet in her office at the IRC to ask her about what their organization does around the world. International Rescue Committee is an international humanitarian organization. We're active in over 40 countries around the world. We have offices in 26 cities around the U.S. So a lot of the work we do overseas is emergency and crisis response, often responding to conflict or post-conflict situations, but sometimes also disasters. And then what we do in the U.S. is pretty much exclusively refugee resettlement and refugee services. Harriet told us that the office in Charlottesville is fairly small, with only about 20 employees, but she explained the extensive amount of work they put into refugee resettlement around the Charlottesville area. We know they're coming a couple weeks ahead of time. We look for housing for them. We furnish it. We pick them up at the airport, take them to this house that's furnished, and even to the point of there has to be food in the fridge and a meal waiting for them that they can sit down and eat as soon as they walk in. It seems like such a simple detail, having food in the fridge and a meal waiting for you. But if this is your first day in an entirely new country, with little except the clothes you have, a hot meal can become really important. Harriet explains some of the other immediate work that the IRC does to help new refugees get settled. And, you know, it's very detailed out. And then we start working, help them apply for social security cards, make sure they get a health screening and any medical needs attended to enrolling uh, the kids in school, and then start working with the adults to help them find employment. Because there's an expectation in refugee resettlement that families should be self-sufficient within three to four months after arrival. It takes time for refugees to adjust to life in an entirely new country and city. When Bushiri and his siblings arrived in Charlottesville, he said it was especially difficult at first due to the language barrier. 
English happens to be Bushiri's third language, after Swahili and French. First few days it was hard because when we came here we spoke no English. So it was kind of difficult, like communication, but we had volunteers from IRC. So they came to help us, like go to shopping, to show us around. In addition to the volunteers who helped Bushiri, the IRC also helped to provide other life necessities. So they help us to find housing, they give us a food stamp, and then they give us Medicare for eight months, the looking job for us, then they send us for English classes. And the IRC continues to support refugees like Bushiri for years after their initial resettlement. We do that first initial job placement, which is like, you got to get something so you have money coming in. But then we continue working with families on career advancement. We can help people get into workforce training, like PVCC courses, or if they were a professional in their country, like they were an engineer, we can work with them and try and see if we can get them recertified so they can return to their career here. The work that Harriet describes is only a small sample of the extent of services provided to refugees. The IRC also provides legal support, English classes, family reunification services, youth programs, nutrition programming, parent education, among several other services, with the goal of integrating refugees into the local community. Since Bushiri has come to America, he has used the employment services of the IRC to try and earn a living. He's worked at a car wash, a restaurant, and a nursing home, and now he is working in housekeeping. But all of these jobs have simply been stepping stones to Bushiri's larger goal. Bushiri wants to go into healthcare as a nursing assistant, and he cites his father as his inspiration because he saw the impact that his father had as a physician in the Congo. And after living in Charlottesville for the past six years, Bushiri has accomplished a lot. Last year, I get my citizenship, uh, and then I get my GD, and then and now I'm still taking some prerequisite classes for nursing, and then I'm still taking English classes because I still have difficulty with English, and then I'm taking CNS, CNS Certified Nurse Assistance, because I want to get some experience before I apply for nursing school. It was a long journey for Bushiri to arrive at this point in his life. Now, Bushiri wants to get his story out to as many people as possible to help others realize how hard it can be for refugees. To wrap up our interview with Bushiri, we asked him if there was anything that people should know about refugees. That's why I try to write, I put them at their story in competition every year since 2017, and then I try to share about how refugee life is. So it's now, for me, I can say it's not very easy to be a refugee. The country we came from, we came here, so it's totally different. And then especially for culture, language, so to be a refugee is not easy, it's hard. Leaving your home country behind is never easy. And often, refugees have little choice in the matter. Through sharing the stories of refugees like Bushiri and learning about all the hurdles they have to overcome, we hope to dispel some of the anti-refugee or anti-immigrant narratives out there. You know, one of the anti-immigrant narratives that's out there is, oh, immigrants just come here to, like, get on. Like, people think, like, because you're accessing public assistance, that just means you're on it forever. And the whole point of public assistance is to be a short-term transition. And that's what we see happening with our families. You know, they, they need it for a few months, and then they, they're working and they move on. You know, it's not immediate. It takes time. 
The United States was largely built by immigrants, and our diversity is what makes this country so great. Harriet told us that the immigrant population in America actually boosts our economy. The statistics, you know, people don't like statistics. There's pretty good evidence that immigrants grow the economy. and They open small businesses at a much greater rate than, you know, American-born people do and stuff like that. So... In addition to an improved economy, refugees enrich our communities simply by being here and sharing their perspectives. And we could all be a little more understanding and recognize that refugees are not here to terrorize us or take our jobs or take advantage of the system. For the most part, they just want safety and happiness. What does the term American dream mean to you? I think it's to live like a better life because there are many opportunities when we came here. You know, if you want to work, maybe two, three jobs, so it depends if you want to go to school, so to live in a better life. Thank you for listening to Refugee Realities, a podcast series revealing the stories of refugees in Charlottesville. Over three episodes, we have spoken to refugees from Afghanistan, Western China, and the Democratic Republic of the Congo to learn more about the violence they faced that forced them to leave their homes and come to America. We also spoke to the directors of the International Rescue Committee and International Neighbors, which are humanitarian organizations that provide aid to refugees once they arrive in the country. We'd like to sincerely thank everyone who shared their stories with us. If you feel compelled to do more for your community, the IRC and International Neighbors are always open to new volunteers to help get our refugee neighbors situated. And remember to try to be more accepting and understanding towards people who seem different from you. Because if you talk to them, you'll probably find that they really aren't that different at all. Well, that does it for this week's edition of Soundboard, your source for news, culture, and community issues in Central Virginia. Have a great week.